from the studio in Sun City, Arizona Boomer Radio presents Wealth DNA with Ron the Ronald Naraki. Wealth DNA gives you insights and methods for increasing your net worth. Ron's experience dealing with local and international markets give him insights that can be valuable to any investor. Now here's the host of the show, Ron Naraki. Hello, welcome to the Wealth DNA Radio Show and that we're honored that you're joining us today. We'll continue the summary of alternative investments we started just one month ago on July 8th, which is a show we also remembered, Independence Day in the U.S. Now, some of you might be wondering uh, why we spent so much time on alternative uh, investments. Uh, one second, Natalka. And uh, so anyway, I just had somebody stop by here, and I was hoping they closed the door. But uh, anyway, why we spend so much time on alternative investments in a year that the equity markets in the U.S. and around the world have had outstanding performance. I reviewed the performance of the S&P 500 for the last seven months and thought I'd share some statistics that you might not be aware of. Recall the S&P 500 hit its low point in March of 2009, and then it rose almost continuously for four years. By the end of March of 2013, just a few months ago, the S&P 500 reached a new record high, meaning it had fully recovered from the Great Recession and even exceeded the highest level before that. One of the guests on our show had predicted that the equity markets would recover and regain their highs in about three years. You may recall when I had H.O. pushed on the show, I teased him about his faulty forecast since it indeed looked like it would be four years before it reached new highs. History, of course, gives us perfect hindsight, and we now know that stock market recovery took just under 49 months. Now, in the meantime, some well-known forecasters like Harry S. Dent Jr., who's earned a lot of money by publishing books, said the market would crash again well before it ever reached those old highs. Maybe instead of reading those books, economists, forecasters, and investors would be better off listening to the Wealth DNA radio show, just like you are. That said, it's always easier to pick the advice we should have listened to after the fact. And H.L. Quist, who is one of my investment advisors, was absolutely correct on the stock market recovery, but so far has been overly optimistic on the uh, gold and, and precious metals markets, which will be one of our topics today. I've been taking profits as stock prices hit new highs and accumulating precious metals as their prices declined. Even though this has hurt my portfolio performance in 2013, I've actually never lost money taking profits, and I do believe the fundamental case for precious metals is sound, so I should do well in the next few years. Now back to those statistics. So far in 2013, we've had about 150 trading days, and we've had 25 new record highs on the S&P 500. In essence, during 2013, there's been a new record every six trading days. And let me repeat that. During 2013, a new record high on the S&P 500 every six trading days. If we exclude the first 80 days or so before the S&P 500 hit its first new record since the Great Recession, that means since April there has been a new record high every three trading days. Now, 
I didn't go back and study the long-term history of the equity markets, but 25 new record highs in 75 trading days is probably in itself a new record. Now, the casual investor or the novice investor might say that's a great optimistic signal about the future of the equity markets for the next year. For the regular listeners, especially those with a few gray hairs that have invested in many prior cycles, like I have, those new record highs are more of a signal to take profits and wait for the next decline. By the way, the eventual decline of the equity markets was not our primary motivation for this series of shows we've done on alternative investments, and yet it might just be a good motivation for some listeners, and maybe you, to go back and re-listen to the details of those alternatives. The real motivation for this series on alternative investments has been another much longer bullish cycle that we've been warning about. That's the 35 years of increasing values of bonds, especially in the United States. You see the amount of money invested in the bond market actually dwarfs the total amount invested in equities. You may wonder why especially given that a typical investor's allocation might be 60% or 80% to equities and 40 or 20% to bonds and cash. So why would bonds have a higher allocation? Now just look at the real estate market for a clue and realize that the typical home buyer uses 20% equity and 80% in loans. Those mortgage loans are a form of fixed income for investors. In the first part of our overview, we talked about the private mortgage loan version. The majority of companies operate exactly the same way. They issue a certain amount of shares and then borrow via bond offerings the majority of their financing needs. Now, another way to understand why there are far more bonds is by analyzing who holds the majority of money in any economy. It's certainly not the young people who have just started their career. They probably have more debt than investments. It's not until much later in their career and often just before retirement that they reach their peak portfolio value. As investors retire, they start shifting their portfolio to decrease their allocation toward equities. So in essence, the guys with the most money uh, also start shifting their money to fixed income securities, most commonly in bonds, which have less variability and thus less risk in general. Why is it retirees focus on bonds versus other fixed income investments? Well, that's what the financial advisors tell them is the best place to obtain fixed income. There aren't many other fixed income instruments that financial advisors are authorized to sell them. Now, I don't know about you, but I haven't met many financial advisors who suggest you invest in something they can't earn a commission or fee on. Where can investors find alternatives for steady income or to diversify their portfolio if they can't get it from their financial advisors? The answer is obvious right here on the Wealth DNA Radio Show. Now it's August 12, 2013. It is 9.07 in Phoenix, Arizona, 12.07 p.m. on the East Coast, and 6.07 p.m., or 18.07, as we would say properly, in continental Europe, where I happen to be for the last couple of months. You're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. This show airs every second and fourth Monday at 9 a.m. 
in Arizona. I certainly hope you can join us each time we air, but if you miss a show or if you want to go back and re-listen to our prior shows, like the earlier ones on Alternative Investments, you can hear them on the archives. Where? Just go to www.wealthdna.us, where we list each of the shows, both upcoming and archived. Now, for those curious about the U.S. equity markets, after a rather choppy week, the U.S. markets are off to kind of a flat start. I have rechecked in the last few minutes, but I don't think anything's changed. They're down a little bit. Asia was mixed, with Japan down slightly, but China was up over 2%. Europe was mixed, not a lot of movement, and Brazil is up around 3%. A wild day. Now, this happens to be a perfect example of how diversification works. On the very same day, some markets are zigging and others are zagging. That's the technical term we use in investing. If you have all the money in just one of them, your portfolio would be much more volatile than if you have, uh, and by the way, when I say volatile, that also means riskier. That same is true if you invest in only equities or only in bonds. So diversification mixes those together and gives you much smoother returns. Now, when I prepared the summary of alternative investments for our July 8th program, I realized there was far more information to cover than it could be done in just one hour. So I covered as many as I could. We'll cover the rest today. Just to refresh your memory, in that first portion, we covered four strategies for direct investment in real estate, namely rental properties, fix and flip, lease option, and the two shows we did on investing private mortgages. You may recall lease option properties are among my favorite investments for growth, and private mortgages are among my favorite investments for fixed income. In addition to good returns, both of these are also secured and insured, something you don't get with either stocks or bonds. Additionally, you can do well investing in real estate without following those minute details of Fed or other central bank announcements. All the things that they're talking about in the financial stations. The main financial indicator I watch is whether the banks are loaning to risky borrowers. That's a good signal to slow my investments and even sell and wait for another crash. Just like night follows day. Now, and for the last five years, the opposite has been true. Banks are borrowing from the Fed at really low rates and lending the money to the U.S. Treasury, or just putting it into excess reserves. So the demand for private financing is very high, just as property values are rising. There are far more borrowers than lenders, and probably that won't change until bank mortgage rates rise. Counterintuitive. Now, that said, private lenders can and have been charging borrowers a premium interest rate. They don't charge bank mortgage rates. Now, I certainly prefer to lend on private mortgage loans at 6 or 7% secured and insured versus lending to a bank at less than 1%. I don't know about you. I'm sure I, I surprised a few listeners last month when I defended the banksters for not lending on homes for 30 years at 3.5% or lending to small businesses at 4 or 5% without some sort of government guarantees. I generally don't endorse what the banksters are doing, but in this case, I agree with them wholeheartedly. It makes no sense to make long-term loans at those low rates. 
do expect their lending to increase as interest rates rise, whereas that rise in rates is what will hurt bondholders as the principal value of bonds declines. You may remember the teeter-totter we've talked about in the past. And thus, those investors' spending power declines as inflation rises. I realize I just went off on a tangent on real estate-related items, but now back to what I covered in our first part of the overview of alternative investments. Most covered managed futures pay higher risk, higher return, but uncorrelated diversification. As well as the upcoming field of crowdfunding, we'll invite more guests to discuss crowdfunding as the legislation gets finalized, hopefully prior to year-end. In our final segment on that show, we also talked about MLPs, Master Limited Partnerships, which, by the way, can be purchased through your brokerage account. I also have been increasing my purchases of those MLPs as the prices have come down recently from their highs. See, MLPs became a popular alternative to bonds as interest rates have been low, whether it's driven by our show or just a lot of Investors notice the risk? I don't know. So we've actually had a bubble in in MLP prices during 2013. And as we discussed on prior shows, unlike bonds, MLPs do a nice hedge against inflation. Now, I'm hoping to make the second part of this view of alternative investments that we do today for those who listen to our entire series of alternative investments as to the or at least haven't yet. Now, as I mentioned last month, the vast majority of savers investors will never become millionaires. They'll merely follow in the footsteps of other investors and stick to investment funds. We know them as mutual funds in the U.S. They'll stick to stocks, bonds, and cash, and they'll do what the majority of other people do. Their wealth will be on par with the majority of people, and as regular listeners know, 95% of the population will never be wealthy. So when you follow in the crowd's footsteps, you'll end up where they are, struggling financially until the next paycheck or maybe till the next pension check. Reminder, you don't have to be wealthy to listen to the Wealth DNA radio show, but warning, if you do, you just might end up wealthy. Not only don't you have to be wealthy to learn and listen, we don't even charge an admission. You can't beat that. We're doing an overview of our series on alternative investments. It's not a summary since we're only 90% finished with this series. It's just a pause to reflect on what you've heard or to inspire you to listen to some of the shows you might have missed. In each show, we try to make sure we share some great investment ideas or remind you about the investment fundamentals or inform you of investments your broker doesn't want you to know about. Today is clearly one of those days. Now, the key theme behind each of the shows was how to invest the money you have available when you take profits in stocks or bonds. Now, we're not in a position to tell each of our listeners which alternative investments are appropriate for them, so we share information on each of them. You, as the final decision maker, pick the most appropriate investments for you, at least for today. And then several years from now, you'll come back to this series of shows and re-listen to those you didn't invest in. And see if your financial situation has changed. Or maybe you built the lower levels of your investment pyramid, and it may then be time to further diversify 
by adding more of these alternative investments. So let's dig in and continue reviewing some of those uh, alternative investments, investments and answer the top 10 questions you're most likely asking. If we don't address some of your key questions, I'm confident you'll send us a chat message in the chat window under the radio player. And I did check. It is on. Always welcome your chat messages. So feel free to uh, to put a note in there. We've got a lot to cover, but we will find time to answer your questions. Now, in the next show in that series after NLPs was on February 11, 2013. We talked with Ann Logue about alternative investments for dummies. That show was kind of a top-level overview of hedge funds and socially responsible investing. Those are two books she wrote about. And that both books are part of the series, the Four Dummies series. I encourage you to re-listen to that show and also to read and load books on those topics. The Four Dummies series is always well-written and provides great insights, not only for the novice in that topic, as the name of the books would imply, but also provides great insights for readers with strong knowledge on each topic. The key difference between the Four Dummies series and the typical book on financial or investment topics is the way it's written. It tends to be written in a friendly, casual, and even fun style. Now, on the next show we did in the series, we had Jack Bass on gold and other precious metals. As you learned on that show, he is an expert on investing in gold and writes several newsletters on the topic. What is gold investing? It's one for, in one form or another. You're buying an investment in physical gold or other precious metals. So rather than buying shares of a company's stock or buying an investment property, you're actually buying gold, which has a limited amount of new supply each year. Some gold is used for industrial purposes like connections and electronics, but the vast majority is either for jewelry or as an investment. Now, in the past, of course, governments held gold to back their currencies. But that concept went out the window when they decided to print paper backed by nothing other than the creditworthiness of the government. Where does it belong in your investment pyramid? Well, since gold doesn't provide you any interest or dividends, I'd suggest it in the third level of your pyramid. The value of gold will rise as currencies devalue, and thus you can expect some appreciation in the long term. What returns can you expect? Now, clearly a tough question for this alternative investment. For the last year, the returns have been very negative, whereas for the prior five years or so, the returns on gold exceeded every other asset class. The price of gold and similarly other precious metals tends to move in fairly long cycles. Yes, there will be daily variations or maybe even this year as an exception, but those are fairly minor. It's more typical to see a 10- or 15-year period that gold is moving up and then another 10- or 15-year period that gold is declining in value. Now, as I mentioned, through the past years, or now even two years, gold has been declining, but I don't expect that trend to continue in the long run. We didn't talk about that with Jack Bass, but I humbly believe there is a major manipulation going on in gold prices recently. You see, the, even the U.S. Federal Reserve has an incentive for investors to believe that gold prices are on a long-term decline, since that would indicate that their money printing is not inflationary. Now, admittedly, the inflationary effects have been muted 
But as I mentioned earlier, it's mostly due to banks using that extra liquidity to lend to the U.S. Treasury or build excess reserves rather than lending and supporting the economic growth. What are the key risks? Let me start with the good news, which I should have mentioned with real estate as well. You don't have to worry about the value going to zero. When companies file for bankruptcy, often their stock and even their bonds can go down to zero. On the flip side, just like any other commodity, like wheat, sugar, orange juice, coffee, or aluminum, there will be periods of time where the price does decrease. And so you do have a risk of some loss if you you sell during that period. I should also add that gold mining and gold exploration stocks will be even more volatile than the underlying price of gold. I'll talk about that shortly. Is there a correlation with stocks? Not really. Although there will be periods that gold prices and stock prices do follow each other when there's economic expansion, and we saw that in the uh, four years prior to the last few In addition, if you choose to invest in gold by investing in gold mining or gold exploration stocks that I just mentioned, there will be a stronger correlation of their share prices to the general stock market. In other words, gold mining shares will be driven by both the stock market and the price of gold. Incidentally, those mining shares might lag changes in gold price, so gold did start to increase in the next few weeks. We might just see that those uh, mining shares don't move for a number of weeks until uh, they start to recover. Since those companies have a break-even price of gold at which their production is profitable, as the price of gold exceeds that break-even point, their share price might increase twice or even three times as rapidly as the price of gold. Warning, that's also true of price declines, as we've seen in the past couple of years. Is there a correlation with bonds? Not really. Although some people will argue the economy expands and interest rates rise or inflation rises and thus interest rates, uh, interest rate rises imply the gold price will increase. Uh, My explanation is there's no actual correlation between bonds and gold. They're not connected markets. Although there are some economic factors that affect both bonds and gold. Inflation, or deflation being the most important. Now, I guess you could say that gold is a good hedge of bond prices and vice versa when inflationary or deflationary expectations change. I'll buy that. Does it provide a hedge for inflation? Yes. Make that an absolutely yes. It really provides a great hedge since gold prices rise with inflation. Now, if you'd like a more purist explanation, it's not the inflation or inflationary expectations that drive gold prices higher. It's the fact that inflation causes the buying power of the currency to decline, and that's the price of gold, which is expressed in that devaluing currency, obviously has to rise. Now, if you prefer the short answer, yes. There has been a commonly used story to explain this concept. If you ignore the periods of the government intervention when gold uh, ownership was banned or reopened investors, then the buying power of gold has stayed pretty steady or risen uh, slightly in the long term. The story is that if 100 years ago or 50 years ago you wanted to buy 
tailored suit, it would cost you the equivalent of an ounce of gold. At the current price of gold, around $1,250, you certainly would have no problem buying a high-quality men's tailored suit for that price. How has gold performed in the last year? Well, I've already mentioned it's been declining in value for nearly two years, making it one of the worst performers. I also mentioned my concern about manipulation. Since we saw interest rates start to rise, bond prices decline, and gold prices continue to decline. This is not something I'm going to try to explain since I have a concern that forces are not what's behind the decline in gold prices. Now, incidentally, if you decide to buy physical gold instead of an ETF that's uh, gold-backed or pegged to gold prices, you'll actually pay a premium. And that premium is significantly higher than it traditionally has been. In other words, investors value physical gold more than they value the Wall Street paper, which is theoretically backed by gold. Do you have uh, Do you have to be an accredited investor? Next question. No. Anyone with a brokerage account can invest in gold mining shares, gold-backed financial products, and anyone with enough cash can buy gold coins, jewelry, dory bars, or full-size gold bars. Incidentally, I was not suggesting jewelry as a way to invest. Now, in part one of the overview, we shared the definition of accredited investor. If you're not familiar with it, just go back to that overview. How do you invest in gold? Well, I guess I covered this already while I answered the prior questions. You can buy physical gold, ETFs, or other financial instruments backed by gold, like precious metals investment funds, gold mining, or gold exploration stocks, or futures on gold prices. Oh, we obviously haven't talked about commodity trading in this series yet, but gold is clearly one of the commodities that can be traded on the futures market as well. Now, one of the aspects that I don't think we covered with Jack was whether you can use a retirement an account uh, like an IRA or 401k to invest in gold. The answer is yes, with some of the restrictions. So it's a yes, but. Clearly, a brokerage account within your IRA can invest in any financial in investments linked to gold, whether they're ETFs or they're uh, stocks. But if you want to own physical gold, you have to do it through a true self-directed IRA. In addition, you cannot take physical possession of that gold in your IRA. It has to be held by your custodian. And you can't buy gold coins with the exception of those minted by the U.S. government. Actually, I have to think about it. Maybe the Canadian government, too. I'd have to recheck that. But let's take a moment to remind our listeners, you're tuned to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki, and I look forward to you joining us every second and fourth Monday. If you miss some of the prior shows, like the earlier ones on alternative investments, or if you want to re-listen to them, we maintain an archive of shows on www.wealthdna.us. If you'd like to get an email reminder of the shows, you can do one of two things, or do both. Just send an email to me, ron at wealthdna.us, We'll keep you posted about future shows and events, or in the upper left-hand side of the screen, just under the Boomer and the Babes picture, click the follow button. You'll be informed of each of the great shows on the Boomer and the Babe Network. Now, reminder, during the radio show, we welcome you, you, our listeners, to ask questions. Just to, to start a chat in the area below the radio player or call in. That number is 917-388-4162, and it's at the top of the screen, so you didn't have to write it down. Our next topic we discussed was hedge funds on March 11th of 2013 with Nicholas Vardy, who you'll recall is based in the UK. What are hedge funds? 
I guess I'll use the definition that Nicholas provided, professionally managed, unregistered funds that are designed to avoid losses. In other words, they're designed to hedge various market risks. Notice I said unregistered funds, so they're not typical investments, funds that you can buy through your brokerage account. I should add that the fees charged by these head funds generally is quite high. They charge 2% of assets or thereabouts, and generally 20% of gains. Where is it in your investment pyramid? I would definitely suggest them as part of the top level. Now, a salesperson selling these uh, hedge funds will say you should have them in the third, even in the first level of your pyramid, since they hedge risk, they seldom have large losses. It sounds good, but unfortunately has been not been the case with the vast majority of hedge funds. As a matter of fact, most hedge funds deviate from the concept of avoiding losses, and there are even some that take major bets in one or more asset classes. My advice is that you only invest in hedge funds after you have a pretty solid investment pyramid. And you can use money that you would put into your future. Uh, let's, let's try that again. And you, can, and you would use money, in other words, the top level of your pyramid, that would not put your future at risk if, you were, if it were declined to zero. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying hedge funds are likely to go to zero. I just want you to invest in them when you're not worried about losing some of that investment. Now, my personal experience investing in three hedge funds while I was living in Europe was bad, but it wasn't awful. The investment advisory company that did the due diligence on those three funds made them sound like great aggressive investments with guarantees from a major bank if the investments underperform. Well, it turns out their due diligence was faulty at best, and the managers running those funds were commingling assets. So if one of the funds bought a 1,000 shares of a stock, their prospectus appeared as if all of the funds they manage own that same 1,000 shares of stock. Simply put, they were falsifying their assets and thus their performance. Now, fortunately, the investment advisory company eventually took part of the responsibility for their tax that their lacks due diligence. And they offered to buy back those funds from investors at 80% of the purchase price if they agreed to do so if in writing, not to file further legal action. So I took my 20% loss and moved on. Frankly, I don't plan to invest in hedge funds again unless someone knowledgeable that I trust, like Nicholas Vardy, feels comfortable with the management company. What returns can you expect? Well, you should expect between 0 to 10%. In other words, if properly designed, these hedge funds would indeed be like owning a well-diversified portfolio that has very little risk of losing money. Hopefully, my experience was an exception rather than typical. Now, recall my statement about the fees they charge. In order to earn a 0% return, the fund actually has to achieve about 2.5% return to cover the fees. And if you are going to get a net 10% return, the fund has to gain about 13%. What are the key risks? As Nicholas mentioned, a good hedge fund would uh, uh, have risk of only a minor loss, which they refer to as a drawdown. The other risk you have is the hedge fund has a more aggressive strategy and thus could have a major loss if the hedge fund manager is wrong about the bet he takes. 
since they're not regulated, there's far more potential fraud, and that's really your biggest risk. Is there a correlation with stocks? No. And that diversification is one of the key advantages for uh, that investors look for when they invest in hedge funds. Is there a correlation with bonds? Again, no. And that's one of the key advantages to investors. Now, does it provide a hedge for inflation? I'd answer this one as they should, although it depends on the investment strategy the fund manager is pursuing. How have they performed in the last year? Well, there are several websites that provide information about overall hedge fund performance. Incidentally, if you are going to uh, invest in one of these due diligence on specific hedge funds, use those websites. That said, keep in mind that future performance may not be correlated with past performance. Now, their actual performance for the last four years or so has lagged the S&P 500, which is actually very logical. So don't view that as negative. As I mentioned at the very beginning of the show, the S&P 500 has done extremely well for the last four years, and any hedges you'd have in a well-diversified portfolio, like holding bonds, gold, currencies, real estate, and short positions and equities, would decrease the portfolio performance. In my personal portfolio, if my uh, personal portfolio were indeed a hedge fund, it also would lag the S&P 500 during that time, since I have a very large diversification with real estate, private mortgage loans, gold, short positions. Do you have to be an accredited investor? Yes. Keep in mind, these are unregistered securities, so it does require investors to be accredited. In essence, sophisticated investors. In many cases, they also have a high minimum investment, making them inappropriate for anyone with a portfolio under a million dollars. How do you invest in them? You can invest directly with a hedge fund management company, and incidentally, some of them are publicly traded now. Or you can invest through an investment advisor that handles these unregistered securities. My tip, contact someone like Nicholas Hardy before you invest in hedge funds. Then on April 8th, we talked about mortgage notes with Eddie Speed, probably the preeminent expert in notes. What is a mortgage note? Well, investing in mortgage notes is very similar to investing in private mortgage loans. You're buying the income stream from an existing mortgage. In many cases, the notes that Eddie Speed talked about were actually mortgage loans originated by banks. So unlike the typical private mortgage loan my company would originate, the notes he talked about are generally 15- or 30-year mortgages with a stated interest rate of 4 to 7%. That said, you would generally buy them at a discount giving you a higher interest rate. One important reminder, there are two different types of mortgage notes available, and you clearly need to know which one you're buying. The first type is a performing note, so you're getting regular interest payments. The second is a non-performing note, meaning the borrower has defaulted and is not making payments. These non-performing notes you need to buy at a much bigger discount since you'll have to negotiate with the borrower or foreclose on the property and then find a new buyer for the property in order to start collecting interest. Now, Eddie's, Eddie's specialty is to buy the non-performing notes, do the workout, and then sell the performing note or even a partial performing note. This indeed can be a very lucrative strategy, but does require know-how and quite a bit of work. So non-performing notes are not for someone looking for a passive investment, whereas a performing note only requires you to deposit the checks 
every month. I love that. Where is it in your investment pyramid? Well, a performing note would be appropriate for the second level, since it provides income and secured by real estate. As with private mortgage loans, they're a great alternative to bonds. Non-performing notes, however, belong in the top level. I'd classify them as the high-risk, high-return investments. Fortunately, if you have the skill to do the workout, you can influence that return. What returns can you expect? Well, although Eddie mentioned 8% or higher, since most investors don't have direct access to Eddie or other large note buyers, I would just say 5% or higher. In other words, typical mortgage rates for performing notes. For non-performing notes, you should expect 10% or higher, which might mean paying expenses and earning nothing for six months or so, and then earning 11 or 12% after that. What are the key risks? Well, your borrower defaults, and you have some expenses related to foreclosure, marketing the property, and lost interest. With any notes, but particularly non-performing notes, your main risk is overvaluing the underlying property and thus taking a loss on that note. That's where the work and skill are involved. My company has uh, many non-performing notes that we've converted to uh, performing notes, and I've always dealt with my own geographic area where I'm able to value the properties, manage the renovation, and market the property. It's a little more difficult somewhere across the country or across the world. Now, is there a correlation with stocks? Uh, no. And as I mentioned during part one, we did see a major decline of notes and stocks during the Great Depression and Great Recession. But in general, no. Is there a correlation with bonds? Yes, there is some. You see, with short-term private mortgage loans, I gave you a different answer, since those short-term notes are not sensitive to interest rates. Whereas a mortgage with 25 or 30 years left on it, or even 20 years, will decline in value as interest rates rise, just like bonds do. That said, if you're earning 6 or 7%, you're comfortable with that income, at least your investment is secured, unlike with bonds. You're probably not worried, since that mortgage will also ultimately be paid off. For that matter, unlike bonds, where companies want to keep low-interest uh, bonds forever, homeowners tend to sell their homes or refinance their mortgage in order to obtain more cash fairly frequently. So the likelihood your mortgage decreases in value is lower than with bonds. Now, does it provide a hedge for inflation? Well, not a great one if you have long-term notes for the reasons I just mentioned. How have they performed in the last year? Well, the gains have been steady and getting more secure as real estate prices have risen. You see, the higher the price of the home, the less likely your borrower would default. The only negative has been the notes with 20-plus years left. Their value has started to flatten or even decline as interest rates have started to rise. Do you have to be an accredited investor? No, anyone can invest in mortgage notes. How do you invest? Well, the first, which I should have mentioned with each of these strategies, is to listen or re-listen to the show on April 8th, 2013. You probably won't be able to buy the notes directly from any speed since he'll generally steer you to some of his students who will sell them to you at a higher price than they bought them for. But an additional suggestion, check out our website, www.earnahigherreturn.us, where we should have a list of notes we have available, or at least a link to download that list. You can also contact me 
ron at wealthdna.us, and I'll send you the list since we don't always have time to keep each website up to date. Now, to group the related topics together, I'm going to jump ahead to our show on May 27th when we talked about non-bank finance. Creating your own investment. I was particularly proud of that uh, title since it was appropriate and hopefully piqued your curiosity. See, with most investments, we tend to think of investing our money with some fund manager or broker to earn a return. But with non-bank financing, it really is possible to create your own investment and thus determine what rate of return you'd like to earn. That said, just like with any other investment, there is a range of reasonable returns. If you'd like to earn 5% or 10% annually, you definitely would be able to do that. If, on the other hand, you set your objective to earn 50% annually, which is in that category of being too good to be true, you might never find a client willing to pay you enough to get that return. So that 50% becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Too good to be true. What is it? Well, you're providing a mortgage loan to either an owner-occupant or an investor. Now, the best way to understand this is to realize you are the mortgage banker. Rather than the home buyer getting a bank mortgage loan, you're providing that mortgage loan. As I mentioned, that banks aren't anxious to lend at today's interest rates, and just important as importantly, there are many people not qualified to get bank mortgages. Now, this could be because they had a foreclosure, a short sale, a bankruptcy, a divorce, or heaven forbid, they're entrepreneurs building a business, hiring people, and thus they're self-employed. Most banks won't even want to talk to them. Now, that in itself is a topic for another show. Since you're able to broaden the number of potential buyers for your property, you can sell the home at a premium price and charge an interest rate above what the banks will then theoretically lend at. Now, that's a phrase I use often. The mortgage rate is the interest rate that banks will theoretically lend at. For the past year, uh, five years, I'd say, it's been just like the children's rhyme you might be familiar with. Oh, did we just lose the line? I just heard a major thud. No, it looks like we're okay. My apologies. Uh, for some reason, I got this major thud on my line. I don't know what it is, but it looks like we're okay. So back to it. If you know that rhyme, if a woodchuck could chuck wood, how much wood would a woodchuck chuck? So if a bank made a mortgage loan, what rate would they make that loan at if they decided to make a loan? Where does it belong in your pyramid? The second level, unless you choose to invest in some riskier, very high-yield, hard-money loans to investors. The vast majority of the ones we do, including very high-yield loans, are safer than bonds, since they're both secured by real estate and insured by two insurance companies. What returns can you expect? I'd say between 5 and 18%. Now, with you would have very low risk at the low end and much more risk at the upper end. Even the riskiest ones are generally less risky than owning stocks or real estate. What are the key risks? Well, your borrower defaults and you need to foreclose and manage the exit from that property. Incidentally, on a well-executed private mortgage loan, when your borrower defaults, you might actually earn more than you expected. Is there a correlation with stocks? Generally not. And again, the exception was doing it during the two biggest economic downturns in the last two centuries. Is there a correlation with bonds? Very little, if 
you choose to do a 30-year fixed-rate loan, which I highly discourage, then you do have a correlation with long-term bonds. Does it provide a hedge for inflation? Yes. You see, as interest rates rise, you increase the interest rate you charge, and the risk of borrower default declines as the property values rise. I like that hedge. How have they performed in the last year? Well, they've been holding steady, and each of the private loans we've done have become safer today than they were a year ago, again, due to property values. Do you have to be an accredited investor? No. How do you invest? The first step is obvious. Listen to the two or more shows we've had on this topic, then contact us, or let potential borrowers know your interest in lending on real estate transactions. I always welcome an opportunity to help you in this area. Contact me, Ron at WealthDNA. US. Now, we had three shows on Angel and Venture Capital, which is uh, what I would say, and I guess I'd use the term, it's a fascinating alternative investment that every wealthy investor should ultimately be involved in, at least to some degree. I was involved for about six to seven years in alternative, uh, sorry, in Angel Capital and uh, Venture Capital in Europe. I learned that as much as I was excited to help companies launch and grow, this wasn't my forte. So for these shows, I relied on more successful guests to explain those topics in more detail. Before we continue, and it looks like I'm running a little bit uh, slower than I should, before we continue, for those listeners that just tuned in, you're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. You can listen to the earlier portion on the archive, and if you missed prior shows, you can find the archives on www.wealthdna.us. The first show on of the uh, angel capital and venture capital was on May 13th this year, 2013, with Curtis Gunn and Horner Base, both of Desert Angels. And please don't confuse the Desert Angels with the Hells Angels. About the only parallel you might find is Curtis Gunn was a professional cyclist for a number of years. That show provided an excellent overview of how investors support the growth of entrepreneurial companies. They provided several case examples and some great information. If you get an invitation to attend one of their dinner meetings in Tucson, I highly recommend you take advantage of it. Now, one of the key things we try to do is define and differentiate angel versus venture capital. I will not do this full justice in short term, a short overview, but there are, uh, let me at least give you, try to give you some of the fundamentals. Now, very importantly, with angel capital, you strongly influence the returns by the companies you choose to invest in. With the, uh, oh, I just lost my my thought here. Very, okay, so so you would influence the uh, uh, returns, and on the other hand, with venture capital, you generally have a professional fund manager who's charging you a fee and making those investment decisions for you. Now, there are occasionally opportunities for angel capital investors to invest in companies that venture capital firms are also investing in. What is angel capital? One or more private investors make an equity investment in an entrepreneurial company. They often provide valuable insights, uh, contacts, management, as well as technical expertise in addition to their financial support. Angel capital is at an early stage in the company's development. Investments are typically between $50,000 and $250,000. What is venture capital? Well, generally,
generally investment funds that are focused on specific technologies so they can bring contacts and expertise relevant to that entrepreneurial company. The VC investments, as we call them, are often made after angel capital investors brought the company up to a much more mature level, and the investments tend to be larger. Now, one of the important things I learned on that show is it'd be very difficult to have access to a broad range of early-stage companies if you're not part of a group like Desert Angels or ATIF, which I'll mention shortly. I generally didn't have that advantage when I was involved in angel capital and venture capital in what I refer to as New Europe, which includes the countries that were new entries to the European Union in the early 21st century. Now, on our next show on venture capital, that was June 10th, 2013, we had as our guest Rick Gibson of Hot Ventures. Rick has so much energy involved in so many areas, I plan to re-listen to that show anytime my motivation level is low. Listening to that show can boost any investor's adrenaline level. What is venture capital? Well, I think I just covered that aspect. Where is it in the pyramid? Well, for both angel capital and venture capital, I suggest it to be in the top level of your investment pyramid. All of our guests mentioned the risk is quite high of any one of those investments declining or even becoming worthless. Although the winners you invest in will more than likely offset any losses you incur. This clearly is a high-risk, high-reward investment that should be a diversification of a strong portfolio. And ideally, you would invest in several or even dozens of entrepreneurial companies. Now, looking back to my years in angel capital and venture capital, this was probably my main mistake. I was investing in one or two companies and actively involved in the management of each of them. Now, what returns can you expect if you have a well-diversified group of investments that you've done the appropriate due diligence on? You would expect a return of 15 to 25% annually. Very, very clearly, that return is highly dependent on the number of big winners, minor winners and losers, and the big losers that you invest in. You just have don't know in advance. That's the hard part. With venture capital, it would be generally managed by a fund manager or a group of managers, so their fee structure will also influence the returns. What are the risks? Well, venture capital investments are long-term commitments of your capital, so you clearly have very little liquidity during the investment process. Don't plan to cash out early. As investments are sold, you would obtain part of your capital back as well as gains or losses on those investments. Is there correlation with stocks? Not really. Since the success of any individual company or individual technology or specific product excuse me, is not necessarily linked to the economic cycle. Now, the main correlation would be on exiting your investment. Neither you nor the company would be interested in exiting at the bottom of an economic cycle. There are far fewer buyers for your shares than the stock market is booming like now, in 2013. Is there a correlation with bonds? Simply, no. Does it provide a hedge for inflation? Yes, clearly the value of new technologies or products as well as shares of those companies tend to rise with inflation. Is the, there is a rare exception. You're not likely to find them in most uh, of these uh, groups. If you're investing in a company that has uh, costs dependent on raw materials, commodities, or the cost of labor that could rise with inflation. 
each of these guests we had on, most angel capital, venture capital uh, investors focus on uh, technology companies and thus generally doesn't apply to those companies. Now, how have they performed in the last year? There's really no way to respond to that with that short of a period of time. And any statistics you would look at would show that the exit from various venture capital investments have done very well in the last few years. That's because the stock market has done well, and it's easier and more profitable to exit now than it was during the Great Recession. Do you have to be an accredited investor? Yes. How do you invest? Well, probably the most practical in the way I'd recommend is to contact groups like those that our guests are involved in, or get involved with business or technology incubators in your area. Again, something we talked about. If you have a very large portfolio, less than the tens of millions, you can also contact the venture capital fund managers and let them know you'd be interested in participating in future funds. Now, on June 24th, our next show was on Angel Capital, and our guest was James Gulka of Arizona Technology Investor Forum. No locally as ATIF, but if you happen to go to the archive today, you'll hear the show, but unfortunately, James Gulka was not able to be there due to a last-minute scheduling problem. Our plan is to re-record that show in the near future so that, you, uh, that if you go back to the archive in the future, give that interview. We'll be with him. In answering the top 10 questions I have for other alternative investments, let me just highlight some of the differences from venture capital. What is it? We've covered that. We're in the investment period, just like venture capital, top level. How about the returns you should expect? Because it's an earlier stage, you should expect a return of 15 to 50% annually. Again, highly dependent on the number of big winners and big lunars, losers that you invest in. What are the key risks? Well, you could have a total loss in a particular company. And secondly, angel capital investment like venture is a long-term commitment of your capital. You have clearly have little liquidity during the investment property. The process, ooh, losing it here. Long show, I think. Is there a correlation with stocks? Not really. How about with bonds? No. How about a hedge for inflation? Yes, just like venture capital. How they performed in the last year? There's really no way to respond to that. First, it's a short period of time to try to assess, and secondly, there are very few statistics available for angel capital, which is a private investment. Do you have to be an accredited investor? Yes. How do you invest? Again, as I mentioned, the most practical way is to contact groups like those that were guests on this show, or get involved with business or technology incubators in your area. Now, in the next few shows, we hope to wrap our bar series on alternative investments with shows on both commodity trading and forex trading. Since we haven't finalized the scheduling of those two shows, let me just very briefly cover both in alphabetical order for now. We might someday include a show on options and trading in the future. Options uh, trading, excuse me, in the future. Uh, no pun intended, of course. You won't... Uh, Expect, and I hope you don't expect, a thorough overview on these investment strategies since we haven't had our experts on the show yet, and I'm not an expert in these topics. But let me try to answer the 10 questions that we'll be asking our guests. Uh, commodity trading, what is it? Well, there are a number of both physical and intangible commodities which are traded on specialized exchanges, and the largest of which is Chicago Board of Trade. 
Now, commodities include well-known items like coffee and sugar and grains. They include metals like gold, silver, and copper. They also include what I'll call intangible commodities like the weather, the S&P 500, and many other exchanges around the world. Now, the rationale is so that the producers and buyers of those commodities can hedge the prices. Let me use a simple example. Say a wheat farmer is worried about the price declining in the future, so he'd sell futures on his wheat crop at today's price. The buyer of wheat, who might be a bakery or a distillery even, who's worried about the wheat price rising, would gladly buy those futures at today's price. Remember the concept of hedging. It reduces your risk, but someone will lose money on that investment because the return to one of them will be positive, the other negative, but both got what they looked for. They hedged their price. Now, very important, these investments are highly leveraged. You can invest in literally $100,000 worth of commodities for a list as little as $2,000 or $3,000, so your losses can be thousands percent of the money you invest. Where in your pyramid? Unless you're a buyer or seller of that underlying commodity like the wheat farmer, in that case it would be the first level of a wheat farmer's investment pyramid because it's in essence an insurance contract. And remember, it's an insurance contract. If everything goes well, you lose money on that contract. It's only when there's a problem that the contract reduces your loss. Now, on the other hand, if you're investing your speculating contracts um, for um, commodities, this clearly belongs in your top level. What returns can you expect? Let me leave that to the experts, but they can be very negative or very positive. Key risks? Well, you'll also have to pay a fee or a premium to the exchange, so you have to make money on your contract before you even break even. But on top of that, there are potentially very large losses. Is there a correlation with stocks? No, unless, of course, you trade equity futures. How about a correlation with bonds? No, again, unless you're trading interest rate futures. Does it provide a hedge for inflation? Yes, if you're buying commodity futures, that means you're long that commodity. Generally, those commodities will rise in value with inflation. Warning, if you're selling those futures or short that commodity, you'll lose money as inflation rises. How have they performed in the last year? I'm not sure this question can be answered other than for a specific commodity trader or specific commodities. On any given day, some commodities are, raised, are rising and others are falling. Do you have to be an accredited investor? Actually, I'm not sure. I'd need to check this, but... Um, because it is through a registered investment company, I don't think you have to be. How do you invest? Well, the biggest surprise to most people is you use a broker, but it's a specialized broker. Your typical stock and bond broker doesn't have the capability to trade commodities. And in a typical large city, you might have 5,000 stock and bond brokers and only five commodity brokers. Very specialized field. That said, most listeners will know you can invest in commodities these days using ETFs or exchange-traded funds. They also can be leveraged, but not nearly the kind of leverage as commodity trading. And finally, let's do a similar brief summary for Forex trading. First of all, what is it? 
Well, most people don't realize Forex trading is the biggest volume, most liquid of all financial markets. I haven't checked the recent statistics, but it's probably around $2 trillion of Forex transactions taking place every single day. About the only significant dip we've had in recent years was when the euro was introduced. Since the members of the monetary union no longer had to trade their individual currencies on transactions between members. Now, well, living in Europe, I managed the finance function for a number of uh, multinational companies, so I had to deal with forex trading. My primary concern was in hedging currencies if I had a major equipment purchase, or similarly, when I sold my house in Europe, I didn't know exactly where I'd be moving. I ran the risk that the local currency might devalue in the six months prior to the sale transaction taking place. So I wanted to hedge, and I hedged in both euro and dollars, since I thought I'd be moving to one of those two places. Now, when um, my local currency actually strengthened, I actually had a loss, but I accomplished my objective. I had the original amount of money in those currencies. Now, again, with commodity trade, just like with commodity trading, forex trading is highly leveraged. You can buy a hundred thousand dollars of foreign currencies for as little as two or three thousand dollars, so your losses can be very big. Where in your pyramid? Same as commodity trading. Could be at your uh, lower level, the lowest level, if it is an insurance contract against, uh, like I was selling my house, or it's at the top level if you're investing or speculating. Uh, returns, again, let me leave that to the experts. It's going to be hard uh, to predict an exact return. depends on the skill. What are the key risks? Well, you will have to pay a fee or a premium to the exchange. And, of course, you could have big losses. Correlation with stocks? No. Bonds? No. Does it provide a hedge for inflation? Well, it can. See, if you're buying Forex futures and you're along currencies that are likely to strengthen as your local currency devalues with inflation, it is a hedge. How they performed in the last year? Again, not likely I could answer that other than for specific traders or specific currencies. Do you have to be an accredited investor? No. But generally, to get an account, you have to have a, uh, a fair amount of experience in investing or a specific currency risk you're trying to hedge. How do you invest? Just like commodities, actually very often the same specialized brokers, since currencies are indeed commodities. Now, I'm not sure if I should classify them as tangible, tangible commodities or intangible these days. We'll decide that some other time. Now, again, most listeners will know that... Uh, uh, you can also do some currency trading through your uh, stock and bond broker through those ETFs. But the investment through ETFs compared to the movements on currency trading uh, are, are what I would say boring. It's kind of like watching paint dry or watching corn grow. Let me try to summarize briefly. In just two hours, we've done an overview of alternative investors for investors who didn't want to invest a lot of time in them just because they weren't sure they applied for, to them. Well, now you have a Reader's Digest version, giving you the highlights and hopefully whetting your appetite to look into some of these alternative investments. I can safely bet your financial advisor didn't tell you about these opportunities. This doesn't want you to move. This money 
he or she doesn't want you to move some money to another place. That probably explains why you listen to the Wealthy Indian Radio Show, and we certainly are honored that you choose to join us as a source for solid and hopefully unbiased advice. We clearly are not biased by commissions or advertising revenue. Investing in alternative investments is not for everyone. It may, some of them require you to be an accredited investor, so you need to either have sufficient annual income or sufficient assets. Now remember, part of our objective on this show is to make sure all our listeners become accredited investors, since our objective is to help one million listeners become millionaires. And unless the definition changes dramatically, a millionaire qualifies you as an accredited investor. Now, another reason some alternative investments are not for everyone is that the uh, risk will uh, potentially rise beyond your initial investment, especially true of owning real estate. And occasionally when you're a uh, a real estate lender and your borrower defaults, this is also true of angel or venture capital where you may need to invest additional amounts as well. See, when the company's on the brink of a major success but doesn't have sufficient capital, the existing investors have a choice. Do we cut our losses or do we go and invest more? On our upcoming shows, we'll have our, as our guests, experts in these investment areas, specifically in commodity and forex trading. So I shared with you several good reasons to make sure you tune into the Wealth DNA radio show every second and fourth Monday, and we'll continue to share the investment fundamentals and some great investment ideas you've heard about today, as well as inspire you to be as wealthy as you want to be. The next Wealth DNA radio show is the fourth Monday of August, Monday, August 26th. 9 a.m. Arizona. Same station, same time. Well, that said, it actually will be a different time for me since I'll be back in Arizona. Unless, of course, the Boeing Dreamliner I'll be flying on continues to have mechanical or electrical problems. Now, the archive of past shows is available on www.wealthdna.us. If you have suggestions or questions, whether about alternative investments or other investment topics, or you haven't received emails reminding you about this show, just send an email to me. Ron at WealthDNA.us will keep you posted about future shows and events. See you in two weeks. Happy investing. You've been listening to Wealth DNA with Ron Naraki on Arizona Boomer Radio. Arizona Boomer Radio is produced by the Boomer and the Babe Incorporated and can be heard Monday through Friday. You can sign up for their online magazine at boomerandthebabe.com. To reach the Boomer and the Babe, email host at boomerandthebabe.com or friend them on facebook.com slash boomerandbabe. And on Blog Talk, you can friend them at blogtalkradio.com slash boomerandbabe. Follow their tweets at twitter.com slash boomerandbabe. Be sure to make the second half of your life the best half of your life. And remember, at 50, you're just getting started.